Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is episode 36. We're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13 with the theme, Ye are the body of Christ. Now, while I was preparing for this episode, I was reminded of an experience that I had back when I was on my mission, back when, in fact, I was first leaving for my mission. I've worked with a lot of teens over the years and uh, some even right now. And one of the things that's been very common is whenever a teenager, um, whether it was myself or those I've been working with, have left home to go somewhere new, somewhere different, to have a new experience, there's always been an element of anxiety, an element of fear, an element of uncertainty associated with that move. Young people, at some point, you will know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes time for you to kind of go out on your own. And that is exactly what I experienced when I left on my mission. Now, the MTC, by and large, wasn't too bad. I was surrounded by people that I, I knew in a relatively familiar place. I was I was still pretty close to home. And I'd left a while back to go to college and had a little bit of that separation anxiety and that. But even then, I was still able to travel home whenever I needed to. Going out in the mission field for the first time was a whole nother level of fear and uncertainty, anxiety, and unfamiliarity. And I remember just laying in my bed, really that first night in the mission field, just thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing? Where am I? What is going on? Things had changed so much all of a sudden, as they will for you, as you go on a mission and experience that for yourself. The first couple of weeks are always very hard. It's an adjustment period, to say the least. But one of the things that I recognized that really helped me the most was that first Sunday that I walked into church. I was in a completely different place than I'd ever been. And although I wasn't on a foreign mission, I was in Mississippi, which is about as foreign to Utah as you can get. And yet, despite that, when I walked into that church building, even though I was surrounded by different people, people I didn't know, in a place I'd never been, I felt like I was home. And I needed to feel that so much then in that moment. And that feeling continued with me everywhere I went. I knew that every Sunday I would have the opportunity to, in many ways, feel like I was back home. And that, in a lot of ways, sets the stage for these chapters that we're going to be looking at with the theme, Ye Are the Body of Christ. Because as the background goes for this chapter, in Paul's time, Corinth was a wealthy trade center with residents all over the Roman Empire. With so many different cultures and religions in the city, church members in Corinth struggled to maintain unity. So Paul sought to help them find unity in their belief in Christ. This unity was to be more than just peaceful coexistence. Paul wasn't asking them to merely to tolerate each other's differences. Rather, he taught that when you join the church of Jesus Christ, you are baptized into one body, and every body part is needed. When one member is lost, it's like losing a limb, and the body is weaker as a result. When one member suffers, we should all feel it and do our part to relieve it. In this kind of unity, differences are not just acknowledged, but cherished. Because without members of diverse gifts and abilities, the body would be limited. So, whether you feel like you've always been at home in the church, or find yourself wondering if you truly belong, 
Paul's message to you and to me is that unity is not sameness. You need your fellow saints and your fellow saints need you. I love that introduction and in many ways that's what I was alluding to in my experience on my mission. I felt very disconnected being in a place. Didn't feel like I belonged where I was. Didn't feel like I would be accepted. But when I walked into that church building, I knew I was still a part of something special. I was still a part of a family. I still had a family. Although they technically were thousands of miles away, I had the family of Christ that I was a part of, that I could be with, and that I could know that would love me and accept me the way that I was and support me in everything I was trying to do. And I certainly hope that each of you will feel that this week as you study these chapters. I know how hard it is from working with teens and being a teenager myself, how hard it is to feel accepted, to feel seen, and to to feel valued as a person. You're in that phase that every teenager goes through where you're just trying to find your place in the world and sometimes struggle wondering if you fit in. Well, a few principles we'll go through this this week, I hope all of which will be helpful to help you to feel better about yourself and also to recognize some of the the blessings and responsibility that comes to us as a part of being a member of this church and having the knowledge of the gospel that we do. Okay, now for the first principle, I want to take a look at chapter 8, almost really all of chapter 8 in its entirety, although we'll just kind of touch on a couple of verses Starting in verse 1, as I've mentioned before, Paul and all the apostles have a very unique challenge in that not only are they trying to keep the gospel and the practices and the doctrine as pure as simple, but they're also fighting against previous practices and cultures uh, that are being brought into the church as new members are joining all the time. One of the things that was very common back then was idol worship which ironically is very common yet still today. (laughs) Just attend a a Taylor Swift concert and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The way that we treat celebrities or lift people up on pedestals or the way we worship individuals almost on Instagram, Facebook, and other places. It's very interesting to see, although idol worshiping back then is very different than it is today, um, there are a lot of similarities. And back then it was very common for people to worship idols, to sacrifice things to idols. And so because of how common it was and how steeped in culture it was, it was often hard to keep certain aspects of that practice from creeping into the church's culture. Well, in chapter 8, Paul basically addresses one of the kind of practices that was associated with idol worship and idol sacrifice. And he uses it to teach a very important principle throughout this chapter that I want to spend just a moment with you guys on here and now. In verse 1, he says, Now, as touching things offered unto idols. Again, a common practice back then that many that had joined the church had basically grown up doing. He says in verse 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. Often it was animals that were sacrificed into idols, and they were sacrificed in such a way that you could then eat the meat typically afterwards. And referencing that, Paul says, and this is the phrase I want you to mark, we know. He says, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in un- sacrifice unto idols, we know. And then Paul reminds us of what we know about God. He is reminding all the people, we have the knowledge of what God is and what it is we truly worship 
and how idols and idol sacrifice is not a part of God's program, not a part of God's plan. In verse 7, he says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Not everyone knows that. And what he's addressing here is whether or not it's okay to eat the meat of idols, even though we hadn't been a part of it. It's still an animal and it still tastes good. It's still probably delicious. Is it okay for us to still eat this meat? Well, in verse 8, he says, It's not what we do with the meat that's the problem. Because it's just meat. And it's probably very good meat. He says, We are not the better. Neither if we eat are we the worse. It really doesn't matter. But there is one thing to consider. He says in verse 9, But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block, not to you, because we know, but to them that don't, to them that are weak, as he says. In verses 10 through 12, he points out, If those who are weak see you eating the meat in the idol's temple, basically, what might they think? Might they also be encouraged to follow your example and maybe even think that idolatry is okay? Verse 13, he points out, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh. Again, the problem wasn't in the eating of the meat. The problem was in the perception that others could have about us or what we were doing if they saw us eating the meat. The concept that has been taught all throughout Scripture and by other prophets and apostles ever since has been the significance and importance of avoiding the very appearance of evil. That while it's a good thing to avoid evil, it's even better to avoid the very appearance of it. Paul later clarified this principle when he taught the members in Thessalonia this truth. He worded it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. He said, abstain from all appearance of evil. A great cross-referencing scripture you may want to write in there is Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 through 15, which reads, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. In other words, don't even go around it. Avoid it completely, if at all possible. Don't be associated with it. There's a story that was told to me once, I remember back when I was younger, that has always stayed with me that really, I think, fits this principle very well. It goes like this. There was once a rich lord who was in need of a carriage driver. He interviewed several potential drivers, asking them all the same question. The road which leads to my castle has many dangerous areas. On one stretch of that road, there is a steep mountain on one side and a sharp drop off into a canyon on the other side. If you were to be selected to drive my carriage, just how close to that cliff do you think you could get the carriage without going over the edge? The first man said timidly, Well, I'm a good driver. I suppose I could get your carriage to within six feet from the edge. The second man said more confidently, I'm an excellent driver. I could get your carriage at least three feet from the edge. And the third man said boldly, None surpass me in excellence. I'm sure I could get the carriage right up to the edge of the road without going over. But for all their professed skill, it was the fourth man who was hired. The fourth man had said, Sir, if you would give me the honor and privilege of driving your carriage, I would stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as possible. (laughs) I think that is what Paul is trying to teach us. 
it's not safe enough to just try to get close to the edge without going over. But it's best to keep as much distance between you and it as possible. Another example of this is found with Alma in the Book of Mormon and his son Corianton. Corianton had gotten a little too close to that edge while supposedly being on a mission and had made some mistakes. He had been guilty of sexual sin, which by itself is pretty serious. But to add on what Alma reminds him of is possibly one of the reasons it was even more serious. In Alma chapter 39, verse 11, he says to his son, Suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. Suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. Behold, O my son, how great iniquity ye brought upon the Zoramites because of this reason. For when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. Like it or not, as members of the church, we stand out. We are different, and people will watch us and see what we do, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to avoid even the very appearance of evil. Now, young people, I'm telling you this because I know what it's like to be a teenager, and I know how common it is and natural it is to want to get as close to the edge of something. You're at a very curious place in your life. And it's natural to want to probably get close to the edge at times. Just look over the, the cliff to see how far down it goes. But listen to what President James E. Faust taught in a general conference uh, in October of 1995 when he said, Staying away from the edge is an individual responsibility. Occasionally you want every detail of appropriate and inappropriate conduct to be specified, perhaps so you can feel comfortable in getting closer to the edge. You sometimes seem more concerned with what the gospel prohibits than what it gives. For instance, some young adults were surprised when they learned that it was inappropriate for mixed young single adult groups to be involved together in overnight activities. They said, why hasn't the prophet told us? <laughs> the church council in this matter has been clear for many years. It should not have been necessary to tell these young people to avoid the appearance of evil. My strong advice is, if there is any question about your personal conduct, don't do it. It is the responsibility of prophets to teach the word of God, not to spell out every jot and tittle of human behavior. Our moral agency requires us to know good from evil and simply choose the good. If we're trying to avoid not only evil, but the very appearance of evil, we will act for ourselves and not be acted upon. I remember hearing kind of an unwritten rule mentioned among the general authorities that they never travel in a car alone with a member of the opposite sex, even if it's on church business and with another church leader for that matter. Why? Because they are avoiding the very appearance of evil. They don't want to cause other people to stumble in their thoughts, in their thinking, and in their faith. There is great safety in this principle for each and every one of you. But also, you are helping to keep others safe from misinterpreting your example by following it as well. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. With great knowledge and great blessings also come great responsibility as well. Now, what this looks like for teenagers will be unique to you and to your situation, but Elder Stevenson, if you remember, gave a great story, shared a great story about a young man that he knew some time ago named John that was in college and traveled to Japan for a semester to study abroad. 
And one night while he was there, he and two of his friends were invited to a party, which they went to. But as the night went on, things started to get a little out of hand. Do you remember this story? As the alcohol consumption increased, eventually marijuana was introduced to the party. At this point, John said that it was time to leave. But his friends wanted him to stay, and they said that they would just simply pass when the marijuana cigarettes were handed to them. That was simple and easy enough to do, and they wouldn't have to do it. But John didn't feel right about it. Although it would be simple, he knew it just wasn't right to be there and to be associated with it. He wanted to avoid even the very appearance of evil. And so he left with another friend that was a little reluctant, but decided to follow him anyway. The other friend decided to stay. As John and the friend that he was with got to the basement of the hotel, the doors opened to several Japanese police passing by them, quickly ascending up the stairs that were leading to the party. Although all the party members, once they saw the police, quickly threw the marijuana cigarettes off the roof so as to not be caught with them, the party members were lined up. And if even they had traces of marijuana on their hands, whether they smoked it or not, there were significant consequences to be had. One such was being kicked out of the school that they were associated with. So many young people lost out that night on positive, life-changing experiences and opportunities, even if they didn't smoke anything and just held it because they were associated with it. While John and his friend went on to finish school and achieve success in both business and their personal lives, they had both learned and had reinforced to them that all-important, valuable lesson of avoiding even the very appearance of evil. So let me give you a couple questions, you guys, to kind of consider as you let that principle sink in. First of all, how have you been influenced in a positive way by someone's good example in your life? Let's pause for a moment and think about ways that example does have an effect on us. How have you been influenced in a negative way by someone's poor example in your life? Why do you think it's important for you, personally, to avoid the very appearance of evil, even if you're not doing anything wrong? What are some of the ways young people today like to or try to get as close to the edge without going over? How have you seen that among your friends, among your peers, and others? As you look back on your own conduct, is there anything that you have been doing or associating with that might be seen incorrectly by others or cause others to stumble a bit or move away from the church, from the gospel, and Christ, no matter how little they might? Another way of asking that question is, are the things that you are doing and associating with, your example, leading others to God or potentially away from Him? And finally, how can you better apply the principle to avoid the very appearance of evil in your own life and with your own friends? Now, principle two is basically based on the theme of this week's study, which is ye are of the body of Christ. In chapter 12 is really where this concept is introduced. And let's begin by looking at verse 12, where Paul teaches, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. See what he's doing there? He's trying to illustrate that as you take a look at your body and all the different parts, all the different components that are made up of it, and we can only see a fraction of them on the surface. 
although they are very different and they all function different and have different areas of responsibility, they all are still one in the body. And although the body is one, it is also still very different in that it has many members. Verse 13, he takes this analogy and then applies it to Christ. He says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. In the the verses that then follow, he goes on to describe basically how silly it would be for the foot to say something like, hey, because I'm not the hand, I'm really not a part of the body. Or he points out, what if everyone were like an eye? Well, then how would we hear? Or if we were all just trying to, to be a part of the hearing aspect of the body, then how would we smell? Like the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or the head to the feet, the same thing. We can't say and shouldn't say to anyone that you are not important, that you are not needed, that you are not valued. Becoming one in Christ and the body of Christ means that, as Paul says in verse 26, whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. When one member is honored, All the members rejoice with it. That, to me, is what true unity is about. To be so much as one. That when someone else hurts, we hurt for them. When someone else has joy, we have joy because they're happy. It reminds me of a concept called Ubuntu. (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. Ubuntu. And it's based on this experience. One day, a Western anthropologist went to Africa to study the social behavior of an indigenous tribe. He proposed a game to the children, and they willingly agreed to be a part of it. As a part of this game, he put a basket filled with fruits underneath a tree and told the children that whoever would reach the basket first would win the whole basket and could eat the fruits all by him or herself. He lined them all up and raised his hand to give the start signal. Ready? Set? Go! The children took each other's hand and started running together. They all reached the basket at the same time. They sat down in a big circle and enjoyed the fruits together, laughing and smiling all the time. The anthropologist could not believe what he saw and he asked them why they had waited for each other as one could have taken the whole basket for all for him or for herself. The children shook their heads and simply replied, Ubuntu! which means, how can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? Desmond Tutu, a great leader in Africa at one point, explains Ubuntu with these words, One of the sayings of our country is Ubuntu, the essence of being human. Ubuntu speaks particularly about the fact that you can't exist as a human being in isolation. It speaks about our interconnectedness. You can't be human all by yourself, and when you have this quality, Ubuntu... You are known for your generosity. We think of ourselves far too frequently as just individuals, separated from one another, whereas you are connected and what you do affects the whole world. A person with Ubuntu is open and available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good. For he or she has a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished when others are tortured and oppressed. Ubuntu 
is again a concept in which your sense of self is shaped by your relationships with other people. It's a way of living that begins with the premise that I am only because we are. Gosh, I just love that idea and that concept. I remember back when I was teaching seminary at one point, we had gotten together as teachers prior to the homecoming football game and decided that we were going to make scones for as many of the students that wanted to come before the game started. It was just kind of a a fun way to kind of tailgate a little bit and get people excited for the big homecoming game that year. Well, while we were doing that, I watched as a young girl that was a student of mine come to that game and just go and sit up against a fence all alone that was nearby, watching everyone else socializing and having fun. As I noticed this, I quickly called over another student, one of my class presidents, that I knew was rather popular and well-liked and told him what I was observing. And I will never forget him saying to me, Don't worry, Brother Downs, I got this. I watched him grab a couple of friends and go over and take this young girl and bring her into their group of friends. That was Ubuntu. How can one of us be happy if all the others are sad? Or even put more profoundly, how can all of us be happy if one of us is sad? That's what it means to be of the body of Christ. That young man probably has no idea what that gesture meant to that young girl that day or to a teacher whose heart was heavy watching one of his students who was feeling all alone while being surrounded by people or most importantly to a loving heavenly father who I'm sure saw one of his precious daughters alone and was hoping that somebody, anybody, would go and take her in and invite her to be a part of their group. On another occasion, I'll always remember a student, another student uh, at the high school I taught at, who was named Mr. Football that year. He was a record-breaking running back. Yet, when it came time for him to be featured in the state newspaper, he refused to have his pitcher taken alone. Instead, he demanded to have his offensive line in it with him. Because in his mind, although they were a different part of the team, they were just as important to the whole body. They were the ones that were creating the holes for him to run through so that he could get those yards and break those records, even at a young age, the value that other people play in his life. Every person, you guys, is unique and every person is special and has a purpose and is needed. We are better with everyone together. Please, please, especially for you young people, remember that you are. Remember that you're truly one in a million. Or actually closer to one in seven billion. You want proof? Just look at your fingers. There isn't a single person that has the same hands and fingerprints as you. Just look at your eyes. The iris and retina of your eyes is unique from everyone else in the world. The shape of your ears also is unique from everyone else in the world. Your mouth with the print of your lips and the shape and texture of your tongue and and your teeth and your voice, they're all unique from everyone else in the world. And finally, even your toe prints are completely unique to you. Could it be that God is sending you and I a message that only you can use your hands for good in the way that you can and are meant to? Maybe he has things that only you will be able to hear, to see, and to speak when he needs you to. And that your feet are meant to carry you down your own unique path. That you are enough just the way that you are. God wants and the world needs you to be you, not someone else. 
although we're one as a body in Christ, we are comprised of many members and we are very different. And we need that. In this chapter as well, Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit. And I want you to remember this truth. This is taught in Doctrine and Covenants section 46, verses 11 through 12. For all have not every gift given unto them. For there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. To some it is given one, and to some it is given another, that all may be profited thereby. You have a gift. You have multiple gifts. Each person does, and several gifts at that. And those gifts are needed to make the whole better. Read through those gifts in this chapter and find one that resonates with you and that you see in yourself. But understand that those are just a few of them. Doctrine and Covenants section 46 has several more for you to look at. And Elder Marvin J. Ashton reminds us that there are also many others that are not mentioned in the scriptures. He taught once, Let me mention a few gifts that are not always evident or noteworthy, but that are very important. Among these may be your gifts, gifts not so evident, but nevertheless real and valuable. Let us review some of these less conspicuous gifts. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still, small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. I know I've had multiple friends over the years that have had the gift of making me laugh, (laughs) the gift of humor, the gift of comfort, the gift of love, the gift of kindness. There are so many gifts that God has given You have multiple gifts. Every person has at least one, but I believe everyone has multiple. We must remember that to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God, and it is our right and responsibility to accept our gifts and to share them so that the body may be better as a whole. God's gifts and powers are available to all of us. Now, a couple of key questions on this section. I got a few of them here for you here because this is a big one. I know how hard it is, as I mentioned earlier, for teenagers to feel like they fit in and how often you struggle with a sense of of purpose and with a a sense of, of worth. First of all, how have you experienced this truth of being better together and everyone is needed in your own life? I want you to think about in what ways have you experienced this truth and come to recognize that it is true? that we're better together than apart? What activities do you enjoy that involve different people with different talents and different personalities that have come together to share them? Can you think of things like football games or other athletic events, plays and concerts, dances, going shopping to different stores, movies, video games? Do you have any idea how many different people have come together with different talents, different gifts, different personalities, different interests, to all make those things come together to provide a better experience for the whole. Another powerful question is how is the Spirit instructing you to apply this principle into your own life? And how might this principle apply to others in your life? How can you start being more accepting of yourself, your uniqueness, and your own talents? How can you stop 
comparing yourself so much to others. From what Paul is teaching, why is it silly to try to compare ourselves to others? Remember his analogy of the hand comparing itself to the foot or the mouth to the ear? (laughs) How can you better start looking for others that are being left out of the body of Christ? Or the school body, or the body of your class, or of your friends, or those at lunch, or those in the halls, or at football games, or other school events, or similar things. What are some of the gifts that you appreciate in others, in your friends, in your family, and those you look up to? What are some of your own gifts? Write them down and put them somewhere that will help you to remember them. And lastly, what gifts do you want to develop further in yourself? to acquire, to have. Now the last principle today, principle number three, this is a great principle and a great way to tie all of this together. You know what helps bring us together? What helps us to want to avoid the very appearance of evil, even if there isn't anything wrong or evil in what we're doing? What it is that will help us to care so much about others that we will want to avoid the very appearance of evil? What it is that will help us to be more accepting of others and of ourselves, more willing to bring everyone into the body of Christ and live according to His commandments and follow His teachings and counsel? Well, Paul says it right at the beginning of chapter 13, and it's woven throughout the entire chapter. He says in verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity... I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Verse 2, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. In other words, I can have everything except charity and in truth have nothing. Now, what is charity and what does it mean? What does it look like? Well, he defines that for us throughout the rest of the chapter. In verse 4, he says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemingly, seeketh not her own, and is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Or, as Moroni simply taught, charity is the pure love of Christ. Or being able to love as purely as Christ loves. And this applies to both others and ourselves. Can you be all those things to yourself? If you can, then it will be easier for you to be that way with others. Can you be patient with yourself? Suffereth long with yourself? Be kind to yourself? Be humble? Can you be that way with others? Sister Jean B. Bingham in General Conference a while back when speaking about charity once pointed this truth out that I think is very profound and important, especially for you young people to remember, which she said the greatest form of charity may be to withhold judgment. I want you to think about that for a minute. How quickly do we judge others' actions and words and appearance? Maybe being able to hold back that judgment recognize that there is always so much more to the story and to a person than what that we don't see and give people simply the benefit of the doubt that may be one of the best expressions of love that we can offer others. Charity is a gift that we can all have and that we all need to be seeking for. It is a gift of the Spirit given to all those who are true disciples of Christ. But it seems to be given 
here a little and there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, as the scriptures record. The closer that we come to Christ, the closer we come to the gift of charity being discovered and developed within us. And this is the whole reason, you guys, and the end result of why Christ has invited us to come follow me. This is what we are working for and what we want to develop in us and what he wants to develop in us. And in truth, should be the benchmark for where we are in our discipleship and our relationship with Christ. As the prophet Joseph once taught, the nearer that we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we would want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our backs. And we will want to do that because we have charity. Or in other words, the nearer we come to God, the more charity that we'll have for each other. Now, a few last questions for you to consider about this principle. What does it mean to you to have charity for others? What does that look like? How have you seen examples of this gift in your own life? When do you feel that you have received charity from others? When was the time that you feel that you shared that love with and for others? How does charity feel when it is given and when it is received? How does Christ's pure love for you feel to you? How can we better share that same love and feeling with others? What characteristic of charity that Paul describes in the scriptures sticks out the most to you? Which of those qualities do you want or need to work on most? Which one will you begin to focus on developing first? Have you ever prayed for charity? And last question, will you start praying for it tonight? Now, thanks for listening, you guys. I hope that these principles have been helpful. Again, there's so many other great things in these chapters for you to to discover for yourself. But please, young people, if you see anything in here, make sure that you see the value that each and every person has and brings to the rest of us. We are always going to be better with you, and you will always be better with us. We are better together. As always, remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And he invites us all to come follow me. That's how charity is developed. So let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, have a great week. I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.